Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Samuel Remini. He's a non-resident fellow at Gulf International Forum and an associate fellow at Rusi. A geopolitical analyst and commentator, he's a regular contributor to the Washington Post, Al Monitor, Foreign Policy, and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. We last had him on six months ago to talk about Russia in the Middle East, and I wanted to bring him back as we close out the year to assess the Putin portfolio in MENA. Sam, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much, Mel. Great to be on again. Now, let's begin with the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA. Talks in Vienna appear to be stalling a bit, but what does Vladimir Putin have invested in the JCPOA, and, and what sort of outcome would suit his strategies best in, in MENA? So I think we should uh, take a longer view of Russia's uh, involvement and uh, stance on the JCPOA. Because back in 2015, when the agreement was first uh, struck, Russia had mixed feelings about the agreement. And on the one hand, it uh, allowed Iran to escape international isolation, and it made Iran a potentially more lucrative and valuable partner for the Russians. On the other hand, the Russians were very concerned that the uh, moderate administration of Hassan Rouhani, as well as uh, Jawad Zarif's uh, relatively cordial relations with American officials, especially John Kerry and Europeans, would lead to something of a U.S.-Iranian detente that would squeeze uh, out Russia's uh, influence and role, and also uh, lead to uh, Iran and Russia becoming competitors in the energy sphere. And that was something that was very clear from the remarks from that leaked conversation from Zarif that was released earlier this year. Now, however, I think the Russians have a more vested interest in seeing the JCPOA issue get resolved and to see the, uh, the, the talks basically uh, reignite and reboot. So the Russians are more committed to being problem solvers, I think, this time around than they were in 2015. So that's an overarching point that I think our listeners should, uh, should pay attention to. The Russians are wanting a solution to the JCPOA issue for a number of reasons. First of all, they want to showcase their status as kind of a champion of uh, resisting uh, American unilateralism and unilateral sanctions, whether that be in Syria, whether that be in Venezuela, whether that be in Cuba, Iran, that's important. Second, the, the Russians are relatively confident that the new Iranian regime under the leadership of Ebram Raisi is not going to really have a genuine rapprochement with the West. At best, it's going to be a de-escalation. And also, the Russians could see uh, them being able to act on the removal of the arms embargo, which happened last year, sell maybe S-400s, advanced uh, military technology to the Iranians, as well as expand investments in the Iranian oil fields and gas fields, including Chalus, which was discussed uh, last month, which could be a multi-trillion dollar uh, energy investment that Russia could have an important part in and play a role in uh, dominating and uh, exerting leverage over European energy exports and supplies. So they've got clear economic interest in wanting to see Iran stronger. So, and thirdly, they have closer relations now than they did in the past with Israel, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates. So they don't want the uh, confrontations in the U.S. and Iran to become a hot war between Iran and other regional actors, or Iran developing a nuclear uh, weapon or getting close to it. So I think now the Russians are going to be inclined to want to act as problem solvers, try to be constructive, and try to use their leverage and use their person-to-person connections with Iranian officials to bring Iran back to the table and to agree to some kind of a more moderate compromise. So not removing all the sanctions in exchange for removing all the uh, first and then dealing with uranium enrichment, but do it in a more piecemeal process. 
encouraging Iran to make a short-term compromise on uranium enrichment and ballistic missiles, perhaps, in exchange for a partial reduction of sanctions, and then keep dialing both sides down at sanctions and uh, these provocative activities as time goes on. That's what I think Russia's stance will probably look like. And we've seen senior Russian officials, particularly those involved in engagement with international organizations like Mikhail Ulyanov and others, discuss uh, potential solutions to the Iranian uh, nuclear impasse. Like uh, maybe Iran's uranium uh, and centrifuges could be uh, taken under international conservatorship. They could be destroyed like they claim that they did to the Syrian chemical weapons in 2013. The Russians are more outspoken about taking the lead on these kind of pragmatic solutions than they were in the past. So that seems to be Russia's goal. They're, they want to be problem solvers. They benefit from a state of brinkmanship between Iran and the West because the Iranians turn to them as an indispensable partner and they can act like the big boys in the room and they can act like they're, they're kind of like responsible stakeholders and diplomats who are bringing things together. But they don't benefit certainly from a U.S.-Iran conflict that would make them have to take Iran's side. And they've just got a, a, a lot more interest that would kind of make it better for the situation to kind of diffuse in the near term. So uh, perhaps some hope there that the Russians can play a positive uh, influence in getting that JCPOA back on track again. I want to turn now to North Africa. Uh, Libya has a presidential election in on the 24th of December. Now, the Russians, through the mercenary uh, Wagner group, have played an influential role in one of the candidates' military campaign, that being the warlord Khalifa Haftar. Is Putin backing Haftar to the hilt, or is he casting around for other figures to support, hedging his uh, bets, so to speak? Well, at least from my own research on Libya, I can say that there's no single Russian position on Libya inside the Kremlin. Haftar is a, a figure who is closely and strongly supported by the Russian Ministry of Defense, in particular Sergei Shoigu, and uh, he has been a staunch ally because he also was one of the Russian officials, along with uh, Nikolai Patrushev, national security advisor, who has the strongest and deepest uh, set of relations with the Emiratis, who are, of course, also major sponsors and supporters of Khalifa Haftar. Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is the uh, architect of the Wagner Group, which has been sending the private military contractors on Haftar's behalf, actually started getting some cold feet about Haftar's uh, sustainability, his uh, strength and effectiveness as a general and a, a purveyor of Russian interests, as well as a defender, more importantly, of Russian uh, oil and port and commercial interests inside Libya. As of uh, early 2019, even uh, especially after the offensive went sour in 2020. And he's been looking towards alternatives, especially Saif al-Islam Gaddafi is his personal uh, pet project to bring the Gaddafi family back into power. The Russian foreign ministry, and particularly with uh, Sergei Lavrov, has always been skeptical, at least from my behind-the-scenes interviews that I've done, of the uh, Haftar's reliance on mercenaries, as well as being skeptical of Haftar's American citizenship and his potential unreliability as a partner, when he walked out of the Berlin talks and also walked out of the talks in Moscow back in January of 2020 when the Russians were trying to bring him to the table, he really alienated a lot of the diplomatic corps inside Russia. So they would probably be inclined to just kind of be more, more spectators, kind of let the elections take place, and try to work more malleably with whoever takes power, much like they've done when regimes have changed in other countries, like Sudan, for example. So there's many different views, and that will lead to a Russian policy of probably supporting multiple candidates and also supporting multiple positions. You'll have an official view, which is being championed by the Deputy Foreign Minister Mikhail Bogdanov, as well as Lavrov, 
and the elections need to be held, they need to be all-inclusive. That all-inclusivity could be a card to reject the election results if they think that many candidates have been left out. But given the fact that Saif Gaddafi is running, given the fact that Agula Saleh and Haftar are running, that card is probably going to be less likely to be played than it may have looked like a few months ago. In terms of individuals that the Russians might like the most, Haftar is one of them, and Gaddafi, as I mentioned, but there's also Agula Saleh, the House of Representatives speaker is in the mix, who actually became more preferred by the Russians after the uh, Turkish military intervention in Libya began in the spring, because he was willing to talk about diplomacy as well as uh, continuing these military activities. And uh, perhaps uh, Arif Nayyad is another one, because he has uh, visited uh, Moscow on, uh, on numerous occasions, and he is, uh, he's uh, attended uh, meetings of the Institute of Oriental Studies, cultural meetings, and just in general, seems to have a fondness for Russia. So those could be some of the individuals that they're pushing for, mostly on the eastern side. Okay, let, let's move on then to another theater of action, Syria. Uh, first of all, can you bring our listeners up to date on Russia's current involvement and what the strategy is there? So Russia's current involvement in Syria has basically been to ensure that Idlib becomes uh, basically the, 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 what they seem to be the terrorists over there, the remnants of Haitir al-Sham, HTS, are effectively uh, exterminated and removed, and the city, either in its entirety or at least the core parts of it, return under the fold and the leadership of Bashar al-Assad. And that is something that they're working on diplomatically with Turkey, but they're frustrated often from a diplomatic sense that Turkey's not doing enough about those uh, rebel groups that Russia calls terrorists. So Russia's also stoking and backing more aggressive moves from Assad. That seems to be the uh, first and primary goal, making sure that Idlib falls, Assad then becomes the dominant player across all of Syria, and uh, we move now towards the reconstruction phase. The Russians are also trying to quietly stoke uh, fear amongst the Kurdish community of potential larger-scale Turkish offensive, particularly with Turkey renewing and expanding their uh, cross-border ambitions against the Kurds in Iraq. They're telling the Kurds that that might be happening inside Syria as well, like much like we saw in 2019. So they're encouraging the Kurds to engage in either official or back-channel partnerships with the Assad regime. So northern Syria, that's, uh, and, uh, and everything except that's, uh, that small safe zone that Turkey has carved out, largely falls under the conservatorship of, uh, of Assad, even if Rojava remains nominally at least autonomous. So getting northern Syria into Assad's fold and making sure Idlib kind of falls under Assad's thumb. Those from a military and territorial perspectives are the primary goals. Looking ahead at the longer term objectives, there are several. Uh, the Russians obviously are wanting to secure a major part in the Syrian reconstruction process, especially in terms of energy, especially in terms of phosphate, and also in terms of uh, construction and real estate. They're facing stiff competition from uh, Iranian companies, which they so far seem to be dealing quite deftly with. But they're also more concerned about uh, future competition from countries that just have more capital to bring to the table, like China or the UAE, or maybe even down the road, Saudi Arabia, if they normalize with Syria. So the Russians want to kind of play a lead role in the reconstruction process and use their military position on the ground and their role as the indispensable partner to Damascus to get those preferential contracts onto their side. And finally, they want to use their position in the United Nations, as well as in other multilateral institutions, to support what they deem to be Syrian sovereignty. And that means ensuring that the Syrian government 
and not rebels, are the only people who can distribute humanitarian aid and food aid. So they've been resisting cross-border aid on checkpoints that don't go through Assad's hands, and also resisting um, unilateral sanctions and resisting the Caesar Act sanctions against Syria. So that's a continuation of what I was mentioning earlier about their position on Iran, which is about uh, resisting American unilateralism in all its forms, especially when it comes to what they call the economic strangulation of sanctions that are aimed at changing a regime. Now, what I wanted to ask you is about domestically, whether this Syrian engagement and Russia's involvement, is that costing Putin at all domestically? First of all, domestic uh, knowledge of what's actually happening inside Syria is very limited. Because of the nature of the Russian state and line media coverage, I was there in Moscow in 2015 when the Russian military intervention in Syria began. I actually witnessed an immediate shift from uh, patriotic nationalism about Ukraine and about Novorossiya and about recapturing ethnic Russians to all of a sudden about Russian Dershavnost, Russian uh, great power status, and also discussions about uh, countering terrorism inside Syria. The narratives really were, we've got to fight ISIS in Syria before ISIS strikes us on our homeland. It was almost like a some kind of a variant on like uh, the Bush Doctrine of Preemption being applied to Russian involvement inside Syria. And uh, memories of the Chechen War and uh, Russia's uh, and Putin's uh, supposed strong leadership there were being invoked in the Syrian case too. So the coverage of, uh, of Russian involvement in Syria is very much that of a counterterrorism operation and also very much as an operation to kind of uh, recapture and stabilize the Syrian state at a time when America is launching regime change wars across the region, Afghanistan, Libya, Iraq, and also attempting to do that in Syria. From that standpoint, the Russians can claim that the rebels have been uh, largely marginalized, ISIS and the Caliphate have been largely defeated, and the Russians can play, claim that they've played a role in that, even though they really haven't played that much of a role. And Putin can argue that uh, Assad is standing, whereas uh, many of his counterparts from that old generation of Arab dictators have fallen under the guise of Western interventions. So the Russians have been able to frame to their domestic audience a very convincing success narrative in Syria that I think has gotten widespread popular support because it taps into the popular concerns about uh, the, uh, the spread of transnational Islamic extremism, as well as resisting color revolutions and regime changes and pressure from the West. So it's a, it's a popular mission. The role of the Russians on the ground, any Russian casualties in Syria, are almost entirely obscured from the uh, Russian media space, with the exception of uh, some liberal outlets like Nevaeh Gazeta, which dare to cover it. And uh, the co- actual financial cost of the uh, Russian engagement in Syria is, is relatively low cost and limited, as well as uh, maybe a, a, maybe only as much as like, the, well, but with one to two million dollars a week in 2015. I mean, it's hard to get estimates. Those are some of them. And there was very low cost. It's very limited, at least compared to what people suspect is going on in Ukraine. And uh, it's seen as a very efficient use of resources. So from that point of view, I don't think there's much domestic pressure for the Russians to get out of Syria anytime soon. The Russians are cautious to tell people that they're not going to be in Syria for the long term, which is why Putin every six to nine months makes some kind of an announcement, oh, we're leaving Syria. But he doesn't actually leave Syria, and there really isn't much pushback, even from liberals in Russia, for that to change. So I think that the status quo inside Russia will probably continue, and there isn't that kind of domestic pressure. Mm, interesting. So you can, you can ride that out. Um, but, but what about relations with Turkey and, and with uh, President Erdogan? 
How would you characterize them today? I mean, you you did speak about the Russians trying to ramp up fear within the uh, the Kurds about what the Turks may do. Well, what is the relationship between Putin and Erdogan? So the relationship between Putin and Erdogan has really been the cornerstone of the relationship between Russia and Turkey, because Russia's uh, individual ministries have often had uh, limited exposure to their counterparts inside Turkey because of Turkey's membership within the NATO alliance sphere. So you haven't had that many national security advisor meetings, defense ministry meetings, even foreign ministry meetings. And uh, it's often been that, oh, Russia and Turkey squabble in some part of the world or some part of the region, whether it be Syria, whether it be Libya, whether it be the Black Sea, whether it be the uh, even now Caucasus of Central Asia. And it's been Putin and Erdogan having those kind of summits that coming together and kind of resolving and troubleshooting and holding that together. However, over the past couple of years, we've began to see a degree of greater synergy between the other organs of the Russians and Turkish states. More two plus two meetings, more discussions on uh, boundary drawing and deconfliction in theaters like Syria and Libya. Also, more of a discussion about uh, carving out spheres of influence or at the very least uh, involvement in peacekeeping in Nagorno-Karabakh. So the Russia-Turkey relationship over the past couple of years has become more diversified and more comprehensive and hence more sustainable. That's an important thing to, to look at. There are still obviously a number of areas of friction between Turkey and Russia, one of which has emerged most recently. In part, Russia's brinkmanship on Ukraine has been triggered by Turkey's sale of Bayraktar TB2 drones to the Ukrainians, allegedly more drones than they claim to have sold initially. And Turkey is willing to work with the Ukrainians also on uh, fighter jet and just defense modernization more generally. That is an issue of concern. Clearly, the Libyan elections could become some kind of a battleground between Turkey and Russia, especially if they're not held and there's the violence that accompanies it, with the Russians backing the eastern forces and Turkey probably siding with some of the old remnants of the government of National Accord. Fadi Bashaga, obviously, who's rumored to have Turkish heritage, is probably one of their favorite uh, uh, pawns in the game. And the Russians and the Turks have tensions, obviously, as I mentioned, over Idlib and also over the status of the Kurds in Syria, as well as Assad's legitimacy. So there's a lot of areas of real disagreement, but the relationship has evolved so that it's not just Putin and Erdogan troubleshooting it, but also the different ministries establishing areas of cooperation. And Russia and Turkey are also looking towards more long-term economic and trade expansions, like more ambitious trade targets, as well as... Uh, greater uh, cooperation in the defense sphere, especially in terms of the uh, production of fighter jets, as well, and maybe even the sale of more S-400s. So, as Turkey's relationship with the United States remains tense, and Biden's relationship with Erdogan is cooler than uh, Trump's uh, strongman-to-strongman kind of relationship with Erdogan, I think that the Russia-Turkey relationship is here to stay. Well, you mentioned Biden, and uh, I'm just wondering, as he pivots eastwards, what sort of opportunities is this American MENA power vacuum creating for Vladimir Putin? So it's creating a lot of opportunities for Russia to claim that America is disengaging from the region and that uh, Russia can now not just be a hedge partner against leadership uh, from the United States, but can be a really a core spoke of these uh, countries' partnerships within a multipolar world order. So for countries like the United Arab Emirates, for countries like Saudi Arabia, which have always relied on the American security architecture. And they've only dealt with Russia as something of a bargaining chip to, to get American military technology or to advance their interests in very narrow and specific local spheres, like uh, Sudan or like Libya 
where they have interests in common. The Russians can now claim that they're going to build more comprehensive partnerships with these countries. And it's not just the, uh, the, the, the afterflow of uh, the American uh, vacillations on Syria that are causing the problem, but also there's concerns about the uh, American withdrawal from Afghanistan that's been very strongly felt in these countries as proof that America is more unreliable than ever before. So Russia will play that card to get expanded trade volumes. Already, for example, looking at the latest statistics on Russia and the UAE, their trade volumes have increased by 21%, cracked the $4 billion mark. And uh, now with the uncertainties about F-35s, I mean, the Emiratis are looking also at producing an Su-70 with the uh, Russians and Rostec, so maybe Russian defense cooperation could happen. The Russians are looking to expand and deepen their partnership with Saudi Arabia well beyond the energy and, and oil sphere, which has traditionally been there. So Russia is going to get economic windfalls from this. In practice, however, there's a cautionary tale here. Talk about American withdrawal and the actual uh, hype about it has often been bigger than the moves America actually makes to retrench in terms of, especially from the security guarantorship responsibilities. And Russia is not willing to step in and play the role of stabilizer or security guarantor in the region because its strategy depends on being friends with everyone, allies with none, and uh, enemies of none. So it's like basically a strategy of kind of playing all sides off each other, and countries in the Arab world in particular are aware of that. So Russia will definitely bear the, take the fruits and uh, benefit and thrive on symbolic displays of American weakness and take any commercial benefits that come with it, but are unwilling in, and also unable in any way, shape, or form to take on the role that America has played for so many decades in this region. Mm, okay. I want to look now at, at two other players and uh, Putin's engagement with them. Uh, Christopher Davidson calls them the two sultans. That's the crown prince of uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed, MBS and MBZ. Of the two, who do you think is most useful to Vladimir Putin right now? I think historically, you could probably say, if it just, when you say historically, I mean the past decade, since Russian media policy really took shape after the Arab Spring. It's been uh, Mohammed bin Zayed. So Mohammed bin Zayed and Putin have a very close personal relationship. As I said earlier, there's a lot of deep institutional connections, particularly in the Russian security establishment and the Emirati security establishment, because they have similar views on political Islam, as well as uh, the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood is a terrorist organization inside Russia. So there, there is a lot of uh, ideational synergies, personal synergies between the Russians and the Emiratis that have proven to be very useful. The adventurous nature of Emirati foreign policy, especially in North Africa, the Eastern Mediterranean, some extent, at least rhetorically, northern Syria, has been something that Russia can kind of uh, build on. So the Emiratis often provide financial muscle to uh, goals and objectives that the Russians might be supporting in the security sphere. So the Emiratis bail out the Sudanese traditional military council uh, after the coup in 2019. The Russians have Wagner Group PMCs on the ground, kind of helping them consolidate an autocracy. Very similar relationship in Libya, where the Emiratis are actually even financing Russian activities. So... Emirati adventurism has proven to be largely to the advantage of Russia, especially when states are unstable. Obviously, in the long term, the Russians are, view the Emiratis as potential competitors in reconstruction environments, and they're concerned about some of the more deleterious aspects of Emirati conduct, like separatism. The Russians might prefer federalism and decentralization, but not necessarily outright separatism and the balkanization of states, which the Emiratis have sometimes promoted, particularly in Yemen, maybe in Libya, elsewhere. 
So there's been some frictions in, in that regard, but in general, they've had common objectives. Now that the Emiratis, though, are trying to uh, turn the tide, it, to some degree, scaling back, at least they're overtly, some of their interventions. So they're relying a lot more on remote power projection in Yemen. Also with the Libyan elections, probably making that similar kind of switch in Libya, de-escalating and cooling tensions with Iran and Turkey. This is a double-edged sword for the Russians. On the one hand, the Russians don't have to worry about balancing the Emiratis, the Turks, and the Iranians, and uh, kind of pursuing contradictory agendas in the region that are so unwieldy to maintain in the long term. That's one positive. The Emiratis might be more interested in entertaining some of the Russian collective security proposals, which kind of are like an OSCE framework for the Gulf, having everybody in the Gulf kind of uh, live together in peace and harmony. They might be at least more willing to consider uh, those, those de-escalations as positives. But also, it makes the Emiratis a less uh, reliable proxy or surrogate for Russian uh, uh, interests in the region, a less uh, reliable partner. So I think that that means that the Emiratis in, a, in the security sphere will diminish. And what we'll see is probably more of a normalized uh, and uh, above board uh, security and economic partnership, much like Russia has tried to cultivate with countries like Turkey or Egypt or Israel over the years. So that means that maybe the Sultan, who's going to be more influential in the long term, heading into the, this next decade, the 2020s, is not going to necessarily be Mohammed bin Zayed, but it's going to be Mohammed bin Salman. As the Russians and the Saudis manage to maintain a degree of trust over the OPEC Plus issue, as the Russians and the Saudis begin to cooperate on a, a variety of other spheres, including, uh, for example, media and information, for example, agriculture, the shipment of wheat, or the movement of, or even some degree of vaccine diplomacy down the road, public health. And uh, the Saudis look towards uh, Russian technologists and Russian technology to help and develop their, their defense infrastructure, especially if the Americans in the long run prove less willing to sell the weapons that they want. I think that, and the Saudis also compromise on some of their positions. Like for example, the Saudis take steps towards taking Assad back into the Arab League and make advancements there. I think that the Russian-Saudi partnership could simply offer more opportunities and could be more significant in the years ahead, even if the person-to-person relationship between the Russians and the Emiratis remain closer. So I think that they'll keep ties with both, but there might be a slight shift in emphasis in the 2020s. That's a little different than what we've seen in the 2010s. Interesting. Now, do you think the Russians will make any serious efforts vis-a-vis the uh, Israeli-Palestine deadlock, or do you think that's a beast best left alone? So the Russians will make efforts towards the Israeli-Palestine uh, issue, and they already have, particularly with the uh, Israeli uh, war in uh, Gaza that happened in May. The Russians offered to hold summit in Moscow between the Israelis and the Palestinians. They uh, actually were also trying to revive the Arab Peace Initiative, the Abdullah Plan from 2002, bringing representatives of Arab regional capitals together, much like they're trying to do on the Gulf issue, they're trying to do the very same thing for Israel and Palestine. But the problem is those gestures are largely symbolic. And second, the Russians have a, are trying hard to cultivate a close relationship with Naftali Bennett, but they don't have that kind of institutional understanding that Putin and Benjamin Netanyahu had just from over a decade of interacting with each other. So there's some limitations and there's some constraints here. Obviously, the uh, non-Western powers in general are trying to expand either through more assertive positions in multilateral institutions or through outright uh, calls for de-escalation and mediation. This just includes the Chinese, the Indians, even the Brazilians to some extent. They're trying to get more of a role in, in the Israel-Palestine conflict. And 
greater non-Western involvement in Israel-Palestine supports Russia's conception of a multipolar order and is something that they'll probably like to support. But again, this is largely symbolism. This is largely smoke and mirrors. Russia tends to offer to mediate in all kinds of places, whether it be Libya, whether it be Yemen, whether it be uh, Israel-Palestine, I mean, the Saudis and Iran. But they've only really tried to do real back-channel diplomacy in Syria. So they make a lot of mediation offers, but they rarely use mediation precisely because they don't want to mediate in places and fail and risk their reputation. So I think that risk aversion, that degree of caution in the diplomatic sphere, which you might not see sometimes in their political interference or military operations with PMCs, they're more restrained and more cautious in their diplomatic arbitration. I think that that caution will probably prevent the Russians from turning that symbolic rhetoric into a real major role going forward. All right, final question then, Sam. Uh, the last time we talked with you about Putin in the Middle East, which is back in June, so pretty much six months ago, you gave him uh, fairly high grades. I'm just wondering how you'd rate him now. So I think that uh, Russia is in a strong position in the Middle East, uh, much like they were then. I mean, the Russians are in a strong position to maintain close relations with the Israelis, the Iranians, the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Egyptians, the Turks. And as some of the regional rivalries appear to be gradually starting to cool, so whether it be the Alula Agreement, easing the Saudi-Qatari dispute, whether it be these tentative movements from the Saudis and the Emiratis towards at least learning how to coexist with Turkey, the Emiratis and the Iranians holding talks and the Saudis uh, at least sending their security experts to Jordan to kind of do something very similar with the Iranians, the Egyptians and the Turks learning how to live together. As the region becomes, at least in terms of overt uh, regional power rivalries, temporarily becomes a bit more stable and these rivalries start to cool, the Russian strategy of playing all sides off each other could bear fruit maybe even more effectively than, than I would have said six months ago because it's hard to imagine some of these developments happening that we've seen over, over, over the course of this time. There was a lot of things that were up in the air then. We didn't know, for example, the Eastern Med situation was going to boil over. There were many, many things that were uncertain at that time. Looking ahead to the long run, I think the Russians really need to uh, carve out a niche for themselves inside the region, because they're not going to be able to uh, rival China in the economic sphere, especially in terms of reconstruction. They're not going to be able to supplant the United States. So there may not be able to be a great power or in a tripolar Middle Eastern order, like some of their uh, academics and some of their commentators envision. But they may have to settle for being something more than, a, than just another regional power like a, like a Britain or France, and something clearly less than the United States or China. So something in the middle. And have a, a clear niche, whether it be in terms of uh, economic cooperation, defense, uh, de defense cooperation, as well as uh, involvement in conflict resolution. They mean you become less generalist in the Middle Eastern theater and more specialist. And whether Russian diplomacy, which has been remarkably flexible and adaptable, can kind of adapt to that new reality and uh, make the best use of its limited resources going forward is a question that's uh, yet to be seen. And that could be the defining question of Russian policy in the Middle East in the 2020s. Fascinating. And, and the thing that strikes me, Sam, is that, uh, you know, once again, we see Vladimir Putin with clear strategic goals, uh, playing them well. And I contrast that with, uh, you know, several American administrations. And the picture comes out quite favorably for Putin. So let me ask you this, a bit of a cheap question, but if you were to score Putin out of 10 on his MENA uh, strategies, how would you rate him? That's a great question. I mean, it's hard to kind of look at the region all holistically, but given how dramatic Russia's resurgence has been since uh, the end of the Arab Spring, 
uh, to here, I'd probably give him at least an eight, maybe a nine. Eight or nine. Now, there's something for uh, Washington and London and other Western capitals to uh, give some thought to. Sam, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been great to be on the podcast again. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Samuel Ramini, a non-resident fellow at Gulf International Forum and an associate fellow at RUSI. In addition to our podcasts, which I'm pleased to say have a rapidly growing global audience, Arab Digest publishes a newsletter featuring some of the very best MENA analysts. If you'd like a free trial to the Arab Digest newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources. (laughs) 